seat. I'll give you a moment to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're reading from verses 1 through to verse 24. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am. But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves... Let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was a freeman when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation God called him to. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Miriam. Uh, keep your Bibles open and uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're looking at uh, a passage which does uh, have some things that I'm sure are close to our hearts and 
things that are sensitive for us, and so I pray you'd give us great wisdom that we would hear uh, what you have to say, uh, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Charles and Gina had been married for 15 years. Uh, they, they've, been, they've, they've got three kids, but in recent times they've, they've felt a little bit like they're drifting apart. They argue a lot, uh, they're really intimate, and they've begun to doubt whether they were really meant for each other whether they are soulmates. And they've started wondering if perhaps the best thing for them would be to separate. Louise is in her late 20s and she's a virgin who's been uh, striving to live faithfully as a Christian woman, uh, the single life, but she's found it harder in in recent times. Uh, Her friends all talk about sex and, and make her feel like she's missing out. And one friend in particular... Denise was recently uh, challenging her by suggesting that her not having sex was actually harming her as a person. Her decision to live a a celibate life was a terrible thing and it was harming her well-being. And Louise couldn't shake that conversation and, and began to wonder whether her friend was actually right, whether a sexual relationship would allow her to become more content in life. Uh, These kind of situations aren't uncommon today, are they? Uh, This is the world of of sex and relationships that we live in. And those examples, uh, in those examples, we see what a person believes could often, will often have a a massive impact on the decisions that they make. What a person believes will have a massive impact on the decisions they make. Uh, This morning we come across some Christians who have been wrestling with issues around sex and marriage and singleness. Christians who are heavily heavily influenced by the culture around them and who need to be reminded of God's intention for those things. And that's what Paul's uh, helping us, helping them to do this morning. And as we go through the passage, it's going to be a great help for us as well as we think about God's intention when it comes to sex, marriage and singleness. We're up to chapter 7 in this letter of 1 Corinthians and It marks something of a a turning point. Uh, The first six chapters were written in response to uh, the reports that Paul had heard about this church in Corinth. But in chapter 7, Paul begins to respond to this letter that he's actually received from the Corinthians. And we see that from his words at the start of verse 1. Now the second part of the letter addresses questions that have been raised. And because of that, it's very much instructional. Uh, In fact, in our passage, there there are something like 18 commands. Do this, do that. Now, we're going to look at the passage in in four parts, and we'll see God's good intentions in these different areas of life. The first thing that we see is that sex is good, uh, verses 1 to 6. We looked at the first part of verse 1, but the second part causes a bit of confusion. It says uh, on the screen, It is good for a man not to marry. I hope it says that. Uh, The confusion is around who actually said this. Uh, Is this Paul's response to the letter, or is this what the Corinthians wrote to him? And it seems to be another one of these slogans that the the Corinthians had been using and and quoting. Uh, We came across two of those type of slogans last week. Uh, In chapter 6, verse 12, we learned that some of the Corinthians had been using the slogan, Everything is permissible to justify uh, visiting brothels and sleeping with prostitutes. We learn that they said things like food for the stomach and the stomach for food to try and claim that 
people needed sex in the, in the same way that they need food. Now in verse 1, it seems like this is another slogan. It is good for a man not to marry. Or, or more literally, uh, this verse actually says, it, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now your Bibles might say something like, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Uh, we saw last week that some Corinthians had very unchristian views of the body. They thought the body didn't matter, only the soul mattered. And that meant they thought it was fine to visit a brothel uh, to satisfy any desires they may have had. This week we see there are some in the church who have gone in a, a completely different direction. They've said that sex, even within a marriage, is to be avoided. So like last week, Paul sits about reminding them of, of God's intention. And he does it right away in verse 2. Since there is no, uh, so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. Now again, there's, there's something to clarify in this verse. Uh, the word that he uses for, for have implies to have sex with. Uh, if you're not convinced of that yet, keep reading and it becomes clearer. Uh, Paul is saying that there are some among you who think sex is a bad thing, even in marriage, and you're avoiding sex even in marriage because you think it makes you, in some way, more godly. But actually, in the marriage relationship, you should have sex. And one reason that Paul gives is because there is so much sexual immorality in the world. That's why he says married couples should have sex. Now Paul goes on to explain in, in verses 3 and 4 that uh, sex is part of a, a husband or a wife's marital duty. Uh, in other words, God has created marriage. Uh, we heard last week that it's this uh, wonderful covenant where the two become one flesh. This week he goes even further. He says it's also an obligation that husbands and wives have towards each other. And in verse 4 we see that in marriage your body is not just your own. It's your spouse's as well. Now for some people today, that will seem like a, a, very, a very radical way to think about our own bodies. But that's how God intends it. In a marriage, the two have become one. Some Corinthians have a very warped view of sex. So Paul clarifies things even further in verse 5. He says, do not deprive each other. Don't deprive your spouse of sex. Now, of course, uh, that will look different at, at different stages of life. And there will be some cases in, in life where our circumstances will, will complicate things, where health struggles will mean, mean that this command isn't as, as straightforward as it seems. Uh, Paul also says there may be times where you don't have sex for a period of time because of mutual consent so that you can devote yourselves to prayer. Now another reason that Paul gives why, as to why a married couple should have sex, uh, verse 5, is so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. We know that Satan loves to, to see us stumble as Christians. Uh, one way that a married couple can counter his plans is by having sex, not depriving one another in the marriage relationship. Uh, there's a story of a, a young couple who were uh, recently engaged and, and looking forward to being married. And upon reading these verses, they couldn't fathom how a husband and wife would ever need to be told to have sex. They just couldn't comprehend it. But of course, the, the reality 
as time goes on, as, as our responsibilities grow, it's, it's very easy to see why Paul needs to include this in his letter. Because life can get very hectic. Uh, work can be demanding. Children bring an added responsibility. We feel tired. We feel stressed. We deal with health complications. We've got a million things to get done every day. Is it at all surprising that Paul feels the need to tell the Corinthians that if they're married, they have this responsibility to their spouse? Uh, Verse 6 is a slightly odd verse to to make sense of. It it says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. Uh, And I think he has in mind verse 5 and and the part about depriving each other of sex by mutual consent for a time. He's not commanding this, but recognising it's something that married couples may do. So that's the first point. Sex is a good thing within a marriage. And that means uh, some of the Corinthians need to change the way they they think about it. Uh, And I imagine the same is true for some of us today. We're told by the world that our needs needs are are the most important thing. Forget about the other person. Look after yourself. That can very quickly lead to us neglecting this responsibility uh, to our spouses. Sex is good in a marriage relationship. The next way that Paul corrects the Corinthians is there in verses 7 to 9. Singleness is good. Uh, Paul is a single man, as we see in verse 8. And in verse 7 he says he wishes that all men were like him. But he knows that each man has been given his own gift from God. He says one has this gift, another has that, uh, which we'll think about in a moment. Uh, In verse 8 he addresses unmarried people and widows and and again he thinks it's good for such people to stay unmarried Uh, which may seem odd to us and and he'll say in in next week's passage an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs while uh, and and not the affairs of the world and and as I said earlier we're going to be thinking about singleness in in more detail then but he does say in verse 9 that there are some instances where it's better for a single person to be married they cannot control themselves and if they burn with passion. Singleness is good, but it's, it's not for everyone. Uh, and I want to come back to, to verse 7 where, where Paul essentially describes it as a gift because some people see this as a, a strange view to have. Uh, some people will, will view singleness as a gift, but if singleness is a gift, then some people think it feels like you know, the, the secret Santa gift that you, you never wanted. When it, comes to, when it comes to singleness, there are a whole range of reasons why people might be single. Uh, some are widowed, some are divorced, some are single by choice, some are same-sex attracted and again choose to live a single life. Some are single because they're, they're committed to ministering the gospel to others. So when Paul says that singleness is a gift, uh, there is, sorry, I missed one, some, some also would like to be married but haven't yet found a suitable spouse. I'm sure there are many other reasons as well. Uh, But when Paul says singleness is a gift, there there will be a whole range of responses. Sometimes we assume that to have the gift of singleness, we must always be content. We can't struggle with singleness and we can't want to be married. But I don't think that's Paul's understanding because as with any gift, there will be struggles. Marriage being one example. Uh, Marriages are are full of struggles at at different times. That doesn't stop it from being a gift from God. So singleness is good. 
The third point that, that Paul makes, marriage is supposed to be permanent, and that is good. This is uh, 10 to 16. Uh, and in this section, Paul addresses some different groups to make this point. Uh, namely, people who are married, but not necessarily wanting to be. Uh, verses 10 and 11. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Uh, it's worth saying that when Paul mentions separation and, and divorce, he, he seems to be meaning the same thing. Uh, there was a stat from the United States a while back which claimed that 40% of engaged couples thought that their marriage would end in divorce. 40% of engaged couples. Uh, and I imagine that wouldn't be much different here. If our views were, were shaped by our ever-changing society, then marriage will be as temporary as anything. Uh, you may have noticed that Paul left some room for separation, uh, and I take it that's because in some circumstances, uh, separation is absolutely necessary. But that should never, never take away from the permanence uh, that God intends for marriages. And I think that's why Paul leaves the door open for reconciliation in verse 11. Now, if verses 10 and 11 addresses, uh, address marriages where both of the, the spouses are Christian, verse 12 is slightly different. Uh, Paul addresses the people who are, are married to an unbeliever. In Corinth, it seems that there was a view that if you were a Christian, you shouldn't be living with an unbelieving spouse, uh, an unbelieving husband or an unbelieving wife. And Paul elsewhere does say that a Christian shouldn't marry a non-Christian, but he's very quick to shut down this suggestion. In this situation uh, of a Christian being married to a non-Christian, it's certainly a lot more common than we might realise. Sometimes it's the result of a person becoming a Christian later in life after they've been married already, uh, other times because a Christian has married an unbeliever. And I think the fact that he, he speaks about this situation here shows the importance of, of why Christians who, who pursue marriage should pursue it with other Christians. There will always be exceptions to the rule, but it's worth remembering that if we're wanting to follow God's intentions for marriage, then it's very unlikely that an unbelieving spouse would, would want any part in that. Now, that's all I'll say on that. But you'll notice in, in verse 12 that there's another qualifying comment that Paul gives. Uh, it says there in brackets, I, not the Lord. Uh, earlier he said, the Lord, not I. Now he flips it around. Earlier he was quoting words that Jesus had spoken on this issue, but now he's speaking about something that Jesus himself uh, didn't directly address. This is, this is still very much God's word. And as an apostle, he's, he has a God-given authority. So when we read it, uh, we, we do as we do with any part of the Bible. And so Paul says, if you find yourself in a position where you're married to an unbelieving spouse, and if they're willing to remain with you, don't divorce them. Because verse 14, the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. And he adds, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. And what's going on here? Uh, well, he's clearly not saying that a spouse automatically becomes a Christian if they live with a Christian. Uh, normally when, when Paul talks about being sanctified or, or made holy, he's talking about Christians. But here he uses it 
uses in a slightly different way. I'm sure there will be people here this morning who, who grew up in houses where, where one parent was a Christian and the other wasn't. Uh, Paul is referring to the impact of living in a house where, where that's the case. The impact of a Christian who, who prays and worships and follows God. The impact of that is what Paul says sanctifies the, the spouse and the children if there are any. Now verse 15 explains how, how things play out in some cases. Uh, sometimes an unbelieving spouse will leave and, and Paul says, let them do so. The believer is not bound in such circumstances. And he qualifies it by saying, God has called us to live in peace. Sometimes an unbelieving spouse will want nothing to do with the marriage. Uh, and in those cases, Paul does say, let them go. It's a, it's a very sad reality when that does happen. But he's saying, don't let it hang over your life. That's what he means when he says they aren't bound by it. They aren't to feel guilty in that, in that situation. Now verse 16 is a tricky verse. Uh, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Uh, and it could be saying, stay with your unbelieving spouse because you never know, they may just come to faith through you. Uh, and I like that interpretation, and I think it certainly encourages us to do a godly thing, and it, and it does point to what he spoke about earlier, because marriage is intended to be a permanent thing. Uh, but I think in this case, Paul is referring to something else. Uh, in the context, Paul's just spoken about living in peace by letting an unbelieving spouse leave. Uh, so it could be saying, don't try and force an unbelieving spouse to stay, because you don't even know whether you will save them. And in fact, by trying to force them to stay, you may put them off Christianity even more so. Uh, I'll let you work out what you think on that, but, but overall the point is clear. Marriage is intended to be permanent, and that is good. Uh, is that, as a church, a, as individuals, our view of marriage, the permanence of it? So that's the, the third point of the passage. Uh, uh, the fourth and final point Paul makes your current circumstances are, are good. Uh, there's a saying from, the, from France in the 15th century that goes like this, bloom where you were planted. Bloom where you are planted. Uh, and we see a very similar idea as we look at the verses, uh, the final verses, 17 to 24. Uh, three times this comes up. Verse 17, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Verse 20, each one should remain in the situation he was in when God called him. Verse 24, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. Three times. Uh, and what he's doing is he's encouraging all of the Corinthians to think of their lives in light of the gospel. He's encouraging contentment in them, also knowing that the situation, this is the situation that God has called them to. Now a lot of the instructions in this passage have been written to people who, who find themselves in one position, but seem to resent their situation in life. They, they want something different. Uh, much like the, the married couple I uh, mentioned earlier, Charles and Gina, who were wanting to be single, or the single woman, uh, Louise, who wanted a sexual relationship. Uh, Paul's point here seems to be, wherever God has you now, that is where he wants you to be obeying him and honouring him. Bloom where you are planted. 
And that's something he, he makes clear in these final verses. And he uses two examples. Uh, verse 18, he uses circumcision as an example. If a man has been circumcised, as was the practice among God's people back then, he shouldn't become uncircumcised. Uh, apparently that was possible. And, uh, and likewise, if a man was not circumcised, there was no reason to become circumcised. What matters is keeping God's commands. Uh, in other words, living out the gospel of Jesus in your current circumstances is what's important. That's his point with uh, slaves and freed men as well, which uh, I don't have time to touch on right now. Convenient. Uh, now, as we've, as we've seen in God's word this morning, uh, living in your situation isn't always easy, uh, and it's actually made even more difficult by our culture because we're exposed to so much ungodly advice when it comes to relationships and sex and marriage and singleness, and it's very hard to have biblical views around this. Uh, we're influenced by the, the novels we read, the, the romantic comedies that we watch, the news articles, the podcasts, even the music we listen to, and of course by uh, the non-Christians around us, our, our friends, our colleagues, our neighbours and so on. And we can easily find ourselves merging the Bible's teaching uh, with worldly ideas. And when that happens, we can end up making some pretty bad choices as a result. Uh, a much better option is for us to reflect on and, and meditate on God's intention for relationships and for our singleness. And to recognise when we're in danger of, of confusing uh, God's intentions, what, what his word tells us, with the world's intentions. Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to, to rethink uh, relationships, marriage, and singleness in light of the cross of Jesus. Now, wouldn't it be good for us at St. Stephen's to also strive for a similar thing, to keep striving in that way, to be those who continue to encourage uh, God's plans for us and, uh, and for others in, in these areas of life, and if that's going to be the case, uh, then we, like the Corinthians, will need God's grace. Uh, particularly when, like the Corinthians, we fail. Uh, because I'm, I'm sure as we, we've looked at this passage, many of us here will, will know uh, the pain of failing in, in marriage, uh, failing in our singleness, failing in, in whatever circumstances God has placed us in. Uh, we need to be very gentle with one another, not assuming we, we know everything about uh, someone else's situation, or better, assuming in, in most cases there will be much that we don't know. And we need to be gracious as God has been gracious with us in his Son. We know as, as God's people we have all failed in, in many ways, not just when it comes to relationships, uh, but, uh, but in other areas as well. Uh, I, I think of my early years when I came to Christ and, and how much of a change in thinking uh, I needed uh, in terms of thinking about marriage. And we all need ongoing encouragement to, to continue living as God intends uh, in our current circumstances. Our culture offers us some, some very strong views around how we should be living, but Jesus calls on us to live in a, a very counter-cultural way. And while we strive to live according to his word, that also means caring for, for those like us who have failed in, in different ways and at different times, remembering the forgiveness that we now 
have in Christ. Uh, something David uh, reminded us of earlier. And sharing that with others. So 1 Corinthians 7. Sex is good. Singleness is good. The permanence of marriage is good. And our current circumstances are good. Uh, I pray that we would continue striving to live as, as God intends, knowing it is for our good. Amen.